maintaining that trust is critical because you lose it. Um, and the problem is when that when something happens that causes the public to lose trust in you, um, it's usually one of these very large breaches, which becomes very cut public and very pervasive. And it's very pervasive negative marketing for you. So it affects a large portion uh, of your customer base. And, and then you have a very expensive problem of trying to regain that. Um, now, there was a company I remember years ago, uh, and I can... I can... Hi and welcome to another Conversations with Des. I'm your host, Des Blanchfield. And today I have the privilege of having Stuart McIrving, the Director of Product Management at Broadcom with me in the studio. Hi Stuart, how are you? Hi Des, I'm doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing fantastically. Thank you so much for making time to catch up with me. I should explain uh, to listeners that... Uh, You've had a couple of challenges uh, in my front uh, getting on the show. In fact, uh, the other day in Sydney, we had such a crazy lightning and thunderstorm that actually took the whole area I was out with and had no power, network or even internet to uh, get in touch with you. So thank you so much for being patient. It's been great to get you on the show finally. Oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Now, uh, I'm very keen to get to know uh, a lot about your challenging role uh, as Director of Product Management at Broadcom and, and certainly some of the insights uh, that you bring with that role and, and your day-to-day challenges. But before we do, could I trouble you maybe just to uh, give us a little bit of background on you personally, I guess, you know, originally where you're from, uh, a bit of your academic career path, your, uh, any anecdotes you've got from your working history, just a, a little bit of insight into you personally before we kick on to your role. Um, sure, yeah, yeah, happy to do that. Well, uh as you can probably tell, I mean, although I live uh, in uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, in the U.S., um, just from my accent, I didn't I didn't grow up here. Um, so I grew up in uh, Glasgow, in Scotland, in the U.K., um, and you know, spent uh, many years there. Um, you know, as a as a kid, you know, my biggest thing was playing rugby. I absolutely loved the game, um, and unfortunately. You know, age has caught up with me, and I, uh, you know, I can't just take the the knocks or even keep up with the level of fitness required for the game. So I, I'm a bit of an armchair. <laughs> yeah, you, you and me both, mate. <laughs> yeah, I know. Unfortunately, you know, so I'm very much an armchair rugby player now. So I watch the I watch the good guys, um, you know, go out and compete in the internationals. So I'm sure you appreciate that too. With Australia being such a a great nation at this game, so. we are indeed. Yep. So I uh, love that. So, but I still, I do, I still do manage to to keep fit. You know, that's definitely one of the things that uh, I love to do, uh, along with which my favourite hobby is uh, is brewing beer. Um, and I actually brew an incredible amount of beer, and uh, you know, and end up drinking some of it, which <laughs> undoes undoes all that fitness work that I'm trying to do. But uh, but anyway, so that that's what kind of keeps me busy outside of work, along with, of course, uh, my family. You know, I have a wife and uh, two daughters that are, you know, growing up fast. One of whom uh, works for Broadcom oh, wow. um, with me here. Yeah. Yeah, and then the other one, she's at uh, she's in her first year at university. So, yeah, life has gone uh, really, really quickly. Um, but uh, but they're growing up. So yes, this is uh, that's kind of a little bit about me on the on the personal side, um, more of the business side. Yeah, I'm now at Broadcom. Um, Broadcom acquired CA very recently, just in the past uh, month. Um, and I've been with CA uh, slash Broadcom for for the past three years, uh, very much in the in the mainframe business. And I came to CA from uh, from HP. 
HP, I was there about six years. I, you know, I, I had jobs in uh, operations management. You know, it was all the software business within right. uh, HP. Um, operations management, but most of it's security. You'll find that most of my life have been security. Um, but before HP, um, I was with uh, probably a company most of you know, um, IBM. And uh, I really got started with IBM because I came out of university with a, uh, with a degree in electronics and electrical engineering. So I, I joined IBM as a, an engineer, a hardware engineer. I was developing controllers for hard disk assemblies and, and stuff like that. But shortly after I joined um, the mission, the hardware mission in the lab I worked in, this was down in the south of England, uh, they, they lost that mission for, for developing hardware and decided to turn that into uh, a software lab. That was a big part of uh, IBM's future at the time. Um, and IBM very kindly said to me, you know, we'll give you a choice. You can move with the hardware mission, we'll relocate you, or you can stay here and uh, we will pay for all your retraining um, to become a software engineer. So they sent me back to university for six months. All expenses paid, I was still on a salary. And it was just a fantastic part of my life. It really was. I'm very grateful to have had that experience. And that's really how I got into uh, into software. You know, wow. It's, it's been really nice. Yeah, been very lucky. So, uh, And I've had various roles in software since then. I mean, I started on the uh, on the engineering side, the software, as a software engineer. But I've since, you know, been in uh, marketing, mergers, acquisitions, and product management. And product management's where I've really spent the, the bulk of my career. Um, so it's been very, very good. It's a fascinating background, you know, doing a bit of homework in yourself, obviously, and then, you know, reading some of your early uh, writing, even as recent as, um, I think it was mid-2017, I was reading one of your blogs around uh, the whole GDPR challenge and, and where mainframes are a good fit for that. And uh, it was interesting you noted your focus on security because uh, that uh, literally leaps off the page and anything that you're, uh, you're doing just in the language you use. Um, so I'd love to get to know a bit more about kind of what you're doing on a day-to-day basis, um, particularly some of the key challenges around some of the, those topics you've spoken about around security and trust and data and protection and so forth. Given you're, uh, uh, you know, literally on the bleeding edge of the stuff, you're you're living and breathing every day. Uh, from your from your point of view and your experience, you know, uh, what is that whole topic of delivering a trusted customer experience about? Why is this so important? What's the, what are the key drivers beyond the obvious ones that we deal with on a day to day basis? Oh, good question. Um, so, trust is a is a key area. I, I, the way I like it, it comes down to one simple truth, right? A business's customers, um, they're not going to do business with you if they don't trust you, right? You and I both know that, right? Indeed. Um, and, you know, so there's, there really is no business um, without trust. And one thing I actually like to usually elaborate on the trust topic uh, a little bit, right? Because a lot of people tend to think it's, oh, are you securing my information? But it's a lot more than about that. It, it comes down to... Are, can I trust you to deliver the service that I want from you and deliver the service in the way I want it from you, right? And there's a lot, you know, that ha- that is around that piece, you know. So um, it's not just about understanding you're going to secure um, my information. Because if I'm doing stock trades, for example, I want to make sure that when I submit that for a trade, you're going to submit it at right on time. You're not going to wait till the stock price goes up and things like this, right? So there's a lot to trust. Um, but I want to kind of 
you know, drill down a little bit onto the data side because that's an area that's close to my heart and, you know, people with their personal data because when we do businesses with company, right, we hand over a lot of our personal information, right, because companies want to know a lot about us, right? They need this data, uh, detailed information of who we are, what our likes and dislikes are, where we live, um, et cetera, et cetera. Because, you know, they want to be able to sell to us. They want to be able to personalize that, personalize that relationship they have with us. But as a result of that, they tend to hold a lot of our PII, our personally identifiable information. Um, and like it or not, uh, you know, for the average person, you and I, thousands of companies actually have our data, right? And I've got to admit that many of them mess it up, right? right. You've, seen, you've seen how many breaches um, that uh, have been, I mean, it's a surprising number of breaches, right? We see it's the headlines. mind-boggling, isn't it? Yeah, it, it happens way too fre frequently. Uh, and some of these breaches are big, right, where companies lose enormous amounts, tens of millions of records um, actually get breached. So that puts a large portion uh, of the public at, at risk. Now, when these companies have these situations, their brand is tarnished, and it's tarnished for years as a result of that, okay? Uh, when you have that brand tarnished in such a way, that's when you start to, uh, you know, you lose that trust um, with the public, Right. We can recall plenty of companies that have done that. I'm, I'm not going to name them here because there's been enough publicity around them already. And, and I have to admit, some of them have become our customers. Right? Indeed. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's certainly <laughs> not fair to, to do that, right? They've had enough. But even just looking at some of the statistics uh, around all of this, right? A couple of statistics I like to use, and, and I should quote that I, I get them from the Ponemonist Institute. They public uh, they. They uh, publish them publicly. But 65% of the consumers um, uh, have, have lost trust in a breached company. So when they see a company's breached, they lose their trust. But more importantly than that, over 30% of consumers actually discontinued uh, their relationship with a breached company. So what I'm really kind of coming to saying here is a company's success is so heavily dependent on their ability to prove themselves as a trusted institution, but also at the same time, they've got to kind of still maintain their speed and business delivery and innovation and everything else. But if they lose that trust, rebuilding it can be a long and very, very expensive journey. Absolutely. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's such a human trait, that trust component. And uh, I see a fairly significant shift in generations uh, of late, you know, I've sort of watched the last two or three generations, you know, that's aged me, I'm sort of over 50. But um, I've seen, you know, a couple of generations now where even my kids who are, you know, 14 and 17, they have given a significant amount of trust uh, uh, for various reasons to different platforms. Some of them free with social media, some of them are tools they use at school. And the moment that trust is breached, they almost never get to the point where they put themselves in that position again with any other brand. And so even if you're not a brand that's breached data, even if you're not a brand that's lost the trust of the consumer, you are indirectly impacted by what others might have done because that trust component from the consumer's point of view is, is difficult to re-earn, isn't it? Um, Absolutely, yep. And and I read some stuff, particularly the Ponemon uh, homework there um, you mentioned, uh, where they were saying that the, the cost of acquisition of a client might be high, but the cost of acquisition of a or reacquisition of a client who you've lost the trust of is 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 almost immeasurable. 
Um, Good point. That brings me to another question. I, mean, I guess, you know, when we're talking about some of these challenges uh, around the whole issue of enterprise data protection, I mean, what are you seeing out there as some of the key challenges inhibiting enterprise data protection, um, and, and particularly around digital trust? Well, yeah, so let me actually, so let me just talk about the, the state of security, because that will give us a, a good intro, intro into some of the challenges that are being dealt with here. Perfect. Uh, so, yeah, so first of all, uh, again, I'll go back to, you know, surveys and reports that I've read, but Verizon do a very good uh, report on an annual basis um, where they look at what's happening. Um, and they highlighted just that la last year there were 53,000 security incidents, right, and over 2,200 confirmed breaches, right? And when you consider some of these breaches are breaching enormous amounts of data, that's a lot of data um, that's being lost. Now, another um, statistic, and I see this come up regularly, and I'll go back to Ponemon, um, they highlight that on, it, it takes an average of 147 days before an organization detects that they've been breached. That's, that's what's really scary. So you imagine, um, yeah, just even imagine in your own house, you've got, you, you know, some, someone's been into your house and stolen stuff, and it took you about 147 days on average to realize that that had happened. Right. It's frightening. So it's it's, it, it's you know, a third of a year, let's say, not even nearly well, half a year. It's scary. That's right. That's right. So, you know, organizations need to understand that, you know, some of these very subtle, um, you know, advanced persistent threats that come in, you know, they're, they're in there um, scanning around and doing nasty stuff for a long period of time before anyone uh, finds that out. Right. So so that's, uh, you know, some of the things I like to highlight up front. Right. Now, the other thing is just think of the way businesses are developing. Right. You know, so a lot of the challenges associated with data security today come down to just business growth. Right. There's increase, increased pressures from the business executives because they want to gather more information. Right. And, and this information and data about us is good. Right. You know, for the company because they can target us better. But they have more of our information. So these are some of the other challenges is just the enormous volume of information. Now, let me bring it a little bit toward the mainframes now. Um, mainframes are big. They've been around a long time. And they're almost like banks. They hold some of the most valuable information in the world, which, which make them a very, very lucrative target uh, for data, data theft. And hackers, they will actually go to great lengths to acquire that data, right? Now, um, why? Everyone asks, oh, you know, why, why is data so valuable, right? Um, and one of the ways I... I I like to talk about this uh, sometimes is to, to really help quantify uh, the value of data really as a business a asset is just go out there and, and look at the market capitalization uh, of various companies. Um, so just before, uh, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was out looking and I thought, I looked at an airline. Now, you think of an airline, uh, that is a very asset intensive business. Right. They've got very large physical, very expensive physical assets. You know, their airplanes and hangars and everything else. Um, and the airline I looked at, it was valued at about $12.5 billion. Okay. Now, I flipped over and looked at a company that doesn't have quite the same number of physical assets I picked on Google. Um, 
Google, on the other hand, a big part of their valuation is the data that they manage. Right. right? It's, it's, it's really about the data. So the airline was worth $12.5 billion. Google, I don't know if it goes up and down, but you know, today it's probably worth $700 billion thereabouts. So that gives you an idea of how valuable um, data is today. Um, and that's why you know people are you know you get you know a lot of the attackers and everything else going going after it. I mean, cybersecurity in general um, is uh, you know let's say on the criminal side it's it's the most lucrative business on the planet now, even 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 bigger than the illegal narcotics trade. Well, I guess we saw that with um, you know we've seen this terminology unicorn of a, of an organisation that rockets to a billion dollars valuation before the IPO. And uh, yeah, as early as 2016, I remember talking about this whole topic around digital disruption that had happened, and we just had to get used to it. And I started quoting things like, and they were all data companies in my mind. You know, the world's largest taxi company doesn't own any taxis with Uber, and large, mm-hmm. you know, the largest accommodation provider owns no real estate as far as Airbnb is concerned. And one of the largest phone companies in the world has no infrastructure with WeChat. And, you yep. know, when you went through the likes of, you know, retail Alibaba and social media, you know, <clears throat> the largest uh, media publisher, let's say, has, you know, doesn't actually create the content in Facebook. And in Australia, we have a bank called Society One. It's the fastest growing bank that actually doesn't have money. It's peer-to-peer lending. And, you know, you can go on with, you know, movies and Netflix and search engines and, and you know, largest application vendors in Apple and Google don't actually write the software. And I think we've seen this whole transition to what you're getting to there, which is, you know, data is sort of the center of the universe. It has gravity and has value. And uh, it, it's kind of in its the, the honey to the bees. Um, and I guess the mainframe is, is one of the biggest repositories of this data is probably, you know, it, it's just too good to turn up, isn't it, in many ways that um, if you can get your hands on any of that infrastructure, you are very much in the conduit of where this value is going through. There's a number of big challenges around this that, that we've seen come along and, and governments have, have, I guess, stepped up to the plate in many ways uh, with regard to you know, compliance and regulatory compliance in particular. Um, how does this whole topic fit into the space that you're in now with regard to the challenges of, you know, we hear a lot about digital disruption and you know, shift to the cloud and big data and analytics, but I think they um, pale in significance in many ways to the challenges that we're now facing in, you know, with things like what I call the Y2K of compliance with GDPR. Uh, and, you know, you've been in this for a long time, so you've, you've been dealing with the US-EU data shield and a whole bunch of things even locally with HIPAA and so forth and health in America. Regulatory compliance, how does that factor into the whole enterprise security challenge? I mean, that just must be another massive challenge for organizations that come to you and say, help. Well, uh, you bring up an excellent topic because... Uh, I think I can safely say that compliance is probably one of the biggest drivers uh, in security spending. Right. Uh, you know, so a lot of people think, oh, you know, I buy security for security. It's for protection, but it's actually to demonstrate compliance, to get through audits, right, to make the business stronger um, in general. So that, so that's, it is critical, right? And that, that's, so it's one of the biggest factors in driving uh, an enterprise's security program. Uh, and one of the points that you briefly mentioned earlier was this big repository that the mainframe is, you know, for data. Uh, and that's absolutely right. But what's important about that, the reason it is such a big repository is, is because it's been collecting data for decades. The, the mainframe's been around for over 50 years. Okay, so yeah. it's amassed a great deal of data. Something that's important about that, though, is 
50 years ago, we didn't have the regulations that we have now. So one of the problems that we have is a lot of this data was collected without regulations being in place and therefore without the need to build process and everything else around it to make sure there were we were you know we were compliant and could handle audits and all that stuff. So that's a problem that we're now having to kind of retrofit solutions for um, over time. So as this but we talk about this mainframe data growing, uh, so are the number of regulations. Right, they're growing significantly. You highlighted even, you know, some of the most recent ones, right? You know, the, the you know, especially around GDPR. But as GDPR uh, got developed, there are many countries uh, in the European Union um, that have built their own uh, country-specific versions of GDPR. So it gets more and more uh, stringent, right? So most of the companies that have mainframes. They're struggling because of that background I just gave you to comply with all these uh, different regulations uh, and, and handling all the audits around that. Uh, your typical company today, typical large company, I'm going to say, they do about 2.9 uh, audits a year. It doesn't seem that much, but if you fail an audit, and quite often that happens, it gets really expensive because the remediation efforts, they often include implementing or revising security controls. So new assets have to be put in place, new processes, new people um, to oversee that. So you don't really want to fail an audit, audit right? Um, so, so companies now, they really have to you know, do a lot more um, to pass a single audit. And with the way the regulations are changing, they have to set up systems that I'm going to say, let's say flexible frameworks, because they know they're going to have to change, right, over time. But, you know, I'll, I just kind of want to highlight again, there's there's no doubt, I think any any large company you talk to, compliance is what is, what is driving, um, you know, their security spending there uh, today. And that you know we've, as you said before, we've you know we've had a lot of standards around for for you know decades and decades and decades. That, you know, I mean banks have had to deal with uh, you know KYC or know your client as it were. They've had to deal mm -hmm. with anti money laundering, AML, and a range of other things just in our operational space. And as you said, if they fail, these 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 are not really things that you get that quote unquote get out of jail card uh, for. Or it's probably a poor choice of words these days, given the potential repercussions of a breach. Um, if you fail any money laundering compliance, you can't trade as a bank or a wealth management company or an asset management company or an insurance company. Uh, but even more fundamentally, with ISO 9000 standards, you know, just a, a quality assurance. You know, if you're a transport, logistics, aviation company, if you can't pass ISO 9001, et cetera, you don't get the little five ticks in a red box. You can't operate. Uh, in your world, you know, ISO 27001 and, and its family. Uh, again, you know, if you don't get that tick in the box, you're not secure. The, the bigger ones with GDPR, though, I think, you know, is it fair to say that they are so all-encompassing that organizations are, are, are still, you know, even though they, a lot of organizations have been through the basic process, they've gained current compliance. You know, you're, you're talking about decades of data there. Is there, I mean, is there another tsunami of, of challenge coming at us, do you think, with, with your view in the world? With this data that's in there, are people, I mean, Surely people can't just sort of wave a magic wand and say, yep, we're all compliant. There must be levels of compliance and levels of readiness that they've had to go through that, that just continue to wash over and over and over. They've just got to keep checking themselves out. They, they, they work with you and your team around how they're, they're getting that assurance, reporting on that insurance, publicly stating it, being prepared internally, et cetera. 
you know, it's there is a. I say there's another tsunami coming. Um, look at how much again, how much information is being collected uh, from us. But even on a personal level, all the organisations um, we've got these devices in our house um, uh, that we talk to. Right, we talk to these devices and ask, you know, give them commands and, uh, you know, ask them to do things to make our lives more convenient. Right, data is being collected again. Okay, I'm going to, um, you know, be pragmatic here and say for the purposes of personalizing, um, you know, products that can be sold to us, etc. But it's still data that's being collected, and it's going beyond just our names, addresses, email addresses, phone numbers, right? This is conversational data. This is um, gathering data about our behavior, our likes, our dislikes, right? So this is where I see this next tsunami coming because we're, you know, profiles are being built, right? Really understanding, you know, who we are, what we like, what we dislike, you know, and um, that's that next phase that, you know, we've got to be careful about because can you imagine an audit around that? You know, you've just collected a little bit too much information, um, and uh, you know that information is being leaked. And it's not just we have the name and address and phone number of this person. We know who this person is now. Yeah. Right? And you know this is this this is where you know that that uh, what I'm trying to highlight is the information that's being gathered about us is getting richer and richer and richer. And therefore, the controls and regulations to make sure that is used appropriately and, most importantly, that that is protected uh, is going to increase. It has to. And there's some really big shit. I mean, you know, when we talk about tsunami, you know, I always sort of talk about this concept of a tsunami of change. Um, and you know, it, I find that a lot of the time I'm in boardrooms talking to people, they feel faint-headed and breathless, if you like, uh, because not only they got to deal with the whole challenge of digital disruption and the, the challenge of cloud and big data and analytics and just trying to keep up with what that means to their basic business intelligence and customer relationship tools and some of the analytics and data science capabilities to stay abreast of what's in their data. We've got the Internet of Things and then the industrial Internet of Things and you know uh, new network capabilities around 5g and network slicing and what that means and then you know autonomous vehicles and smart bots chat bots and as you alluded to before we've had you know this phrase of voice is a new app and facial recognition and all that rich data and the interesting thing i find is with a lot of organizations even in their own boundaries behind their own firewalls if you'll uh, pardon the expression um, you must be seeing that there are, you know, the left hand doesn't always know what the right hand's doing. So one part of the organisation might be making decisions on a data set and doing all the right things in their view, and then another part might be making decisions on a different data set from a different point of view. But when you combine them, you end up with a whole new regulatory challenge. Is that is that something you're coming across regularly these days? Yeah, that's very true. Actually, that you know, and that's been around in various forms for you know a number of years. But but you bring up a good point. Uh, for example, I may, uh, let's say, with a customer, I may just collect you know how much they've been spending, and it could be just for accounting purposes. That's one part of the organisation. But marketing within that organisation might say, you know what, I I want to also uh, I want to also see their spending pattern patterns, not for billing and invoicing purposes, but I want to see what they're buying so I can, uh, you know, target yeah. new products to them and things like that. So, yeah, we're getting the same piece of information uh, used by many different departments for many different purposes. Um, 
again, some of them protect it better than others. Some of them don't because, uh, you know, you want to share that information more to make it more valuable and be able to use the information better. And maybe there are less protections put around that. So you very much do see that. And then, as you uh, rightly state, the uh, how rich that information is, is increasing over the years. Right. So that we understand much more um, about the customer, about the individual. Um, and therefore, have larger volumes of information that you know we process and could potentially get lost. It's probably a no-brainer, but I mean, is it fair to say that you know if organisations are investing in this space and are proactively getting ahead of this compliance challenge, that surely gives them some breathing room to start working around that communications challenge with the customer and letting them know what they're doing with the data, what they're doing with data retention, data protection. To me, it seems like a no-brainer, but is it the, is it fair to say that it's the case that if people are investing time and effort, resource and money and working with, with yourself and your team at Broadcom to get ahead of this game, that frees them up to actually get back to re-establishing and rebuilding that trust relationship with clients that, that they may not have actually lost themselves, but parts of their industry may have impacted them on? Very important, yeah. Uh, one of the ways I like to uh, talk about this is to say, look, uh, Compliance isn't something you just do with an auditor, or I should more appropriately say compliance isn't something you just demonstrate to an auditor. You want to demonstrate it to your customers, yeah. right? Dem demonstrate to your customers that you're compliant, um, that you put the right controls and processes in place to, to protect them, right? And I think that is a key business differentiator. If you can stop saying, oh, I'm just going to worry about you know, having the right knee-jerk reaction to the next audit that's coming along, I focus on being continuously compliant. And the core audience that I want to keep happy, that I want to address, are my customers. Because let's face it, that's what we're all in business for. Right? And if you can do that as an organization, be continuously compliant and satisfy um, the compliance requirements of your customers, that's a key differentiator. And that's what truly contributes to digital trust in an organization. Gaining, sorry, gaining that digital trust. Yeah, yeah, and maintaining it. I guess that's where you know. I, I'll be completely honest myself. I've you know, I, I I do a lot of travel. I have a lot of relationships with a, dot, a lot of airlines, and uh, in a couple of cases, there's been incidents where you know I've had to get these emails saying there's been an issue with data and so forth, and we've please change your password, etc. And you know, in many cases, it, myself, you know, and I've been in this game for a little while, as, as have you. Uh, I know all the challenges they face, but but even as a just as a consumer, as a as a human, uh, my emotive response to being, I guess, to having a trust breached in any way, and my data and whatever the case, even if they hadn't been, even just if they had a suspicion, it's really hard to get over. It's it's for me, it's almost impossible. I think maybe it's something that maybe an older generation have, have had fear about, but I'm seeing younger generations now get the point where they're a little bit more free with providing information and data and they grew up with social media and they grew up with search engines and there's been this perception that, you know, you get all these great services for free. But once that trust is gone, um, just that... It, is it fair to say that once that trust is gone, the cost of regaining it and rebuilding your compliance surely must be, you know, I don't know what the number is, a two, three, four, tenfold more expensive than actually gaining compliance and, and communi communi communicating that you are compliant? Surely it's cheaper to get compliant and communicate that you are rather than having to catch up and fix that oh very much so right if you uh, you know lose trust 
um, it, it is going to cost you seven times the amount to acquire um, a customer that has lost trust in you than just a regular customer. Wow. Um, that's, that's, that's quite simple. Uh, there was a, I forget, a, I forget who to attribute this quote to uh, now, but, you know, I love the quote years ago that I heard. It was a, a U.S. senator that made the statement, but, you know, he said, if you're uncomfortable with the cost of compliance, try the cost of non-compliance. Right? <laughs> I like that. And, you know, yeah, exactly. And so this is what it is. But, you know, as you say, um, maintaining that trust is critical because you lose it. Um, and the problem is when that when something happens that causes the public to lose trust in you, um, it's usually one of these very large breaches, which becomes very cut public and very pervasive. And it's very pervasive negative marketing for you. So it affects a large portion uh, of your customer base. And, and then you have a very expensive problem of trying to regain that. Um, now, there was a company I remember years ago, uh, and I can, I can name them because unfortunately they went out of business called Card Systems. Ah, um, yes. And they had they had a big breach. And what happened, what, but they only had a few customers. You know, they had MasterCard and Visa and American Express. Um, but, you know, they were, you know, uh, holding up, they were managing these cards for them. They had the large breach. And what happened was two out of these three customers said, we can't do business with you anymore. And they went out of business. Wow. That was it. Yeah. Gone. Right, and that's what happens. It's uh, it's very much one of those end of life things, and we could you know we could do a whole show on that topic of, of who's no longer in the game because of that. Yeah. Um, now you know the the topic of security and data protection is not necessarily a new thing. It's just that I think we've got this exponential camber and explosion of, of of interest in data and value in data, and as you said before, the I guess the um, the richness of the data. Where, where are you seeing some of the big shifts to deal with these demands? I mean, what, how's technology changing to meet the demands of security and compliance these days? In your view. I think, again, we come back to there's certainly a big focus on protecting data. And if you look in the past, uh, the way we've handled a lot of security, it's typically been what I'd like to say a very user-centric or a very identity-centric model, right? So we care in an organization about who the user is and what permissions we give them to access certain systems. So, for example, DES, you may be given you know, access to, you know, the finance database, and I may be given access to the marketing database, but we don't have access to both each, right? So that, that's been the, the model. It's all about access control and what permissions you have, etc. Um, what we're seeing evolving much more is continuing on with that identity, identity-centric model, but starting to focus much more on a data-centric model of security. Now, now that's different because what that does is it really looks in particular about data and understanding uh, what data you have in the organization. Um, and the, basically, the, um, you know, the categories of information, what classifications of information you have. And some of it's non-confidential, insensitive, you know, et cetera, uh, but a lot of it's sensitive. And is it um, credit card information? Is it personally identifiable information? Is it you know, uh, private healthcare records of individuals, etc. So depending on the industry you're in, it, you know, you've got to basically look at what data do I have and what classifications, and then based on those classifications, how risky are those to my organization? 
Um, and then you then you have to start putting the right controls and bringing in you know your access controls and encryption and all these different things. So it's about discovery, it's about classification, and then it's about the protection. Um, so you'll see this data security model evolving a lot more with a lot of the data security uh, tools. The other piece that's important is even on the identity-centric side, um, we have to really tighten up a lot of the access controls. It was only a few years ago in the mainframe that uh, it was basically a user ID, user ID and a password. That's all you really had uh, to control access to some very sensitive resources. Um, but now we've added multi-factor authentication. Now we're adding capabilities to manage privileged users because privileged users, these are the ones, these are the users that have access to everything, right? And if we don't add additional controls around them, um, you know, uh, really bad things can happen if you get, you know, a rogue user or even just someone making a mistake, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so, so these are the areas. And then I would say um, what con what continues to evolve as well is reporting. Because it's all very well having all these nice fancy controls in place, but you know when the rubber hits the road, you've got to be able to prove to an auditor that you've got them there. Um, and really, you need to be able to run these reports and say to an auditor, "Look, here you go. I can demonstrate that I know where all my sensitive data is, and I know I can show you who has access to it, and I can show you that I've got processes in place to remove access when someone no longer needs it." So that's the big area again that continues to evolve is uh, is the reporting all all around that. And as new regulations come out, that reporting needs to continue to align with those regulations. I want to be able to push a button that push that pops out a GDPR report and gives the checkboxes that I am meeting all the requirements of GDPR um, so that I can get through one of these audits. It's an interesting shift, right. isn't it? Because I remember, you know, once upon a time, you know, we used to get these sort of monthly reports on compliance and security and, you know, number of number of people trying to do a ping test and a DDoS and, you know, tapping on port numbers to see what was open. And then we sort of got the point where we're doing them weekly and, and then all of a sudden daily. And, you know, recently I've seen this trend to, you know, what I call technology entering the boardroom, which is where people walking around with very large tablets or, you know, whether they're Android or iOS uh, devices with near real-time dashboards. And I, I remember seeing someone, and I can't remember the name of the product from Broadcom, I'm sorry, but someone came into a meeting in a boardroom and presented their real-time compliance situation with regard to a bank and their risk management. And I was like, wow, this is the first time I've seen someone in this particular role. I won't name the bank and I won't name the person, but they walked up and, and literally put their giant iPad at the end of the table and presented real time from one of your platforms the current state as of that second that instant real time of their compliance and I realized we have not just hit a tipping point we've gone down the other side of the curve and we are running flat out at the bad guys and uh, now you're providing the sort of tools that you need to do that because it is real time and it's happening all the time yep yep very much so now on the back of all of that, uh, before we wrap up, there's two things I'd love to do. Firstly, I'd love to get your advice that you give to enterprises endeavoring to secure their world in general. And then I'd love to do a little bit of future gazing. But but firstly, you know, what kind of advice can you give to enterprises endeavoring to secure the world and, 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 and not just their data, not just their systems, but the whole ecosystem around them, their users, their users' interaction, devices, and so forth. What are some of the conversations you have in this space like these days as far as the Broadcom world goes? Uh, so I'll use a term that uh, that you just used there, um, risk management. That is critical because every organization is different. Uh, you could be a manufacturing company, you could be a bank, 
I, you know, you could probably guess which organization handles more data and more sensitive data. So the, the, the first part is understanding where your, your risks are. Uh, because you have to be able to secure the data, but you can't completely lock it down, right? You still got to be, make it available to be used uh, by the business. So it's having that balance. And, and what's critical there is really understanding where your risks are and applying the appropriate controls um, to really mitigate a lot of the risk that you have there. So, so that's key, um, is doing kind of that risk management approach, making sure you're not locking everything down, but you're providing enough security to mitigate some of the core risks that you have. Uh, the other piece of advice I give is uh, when it comes to data security, it's not all about looking at the user and what the user has access to. You need this data-centric approach. And at the core of this data-centric approach, is understanding your data landscape. What do you have, right? And how much of that total data do you have that is sensitive? And then within that sensitive data um, set, let's say, um, what are the classifications, right? That you have PII, PCI, personal health uh, care records, etc. cetera. Um, and therefore, what are the risks associated with them? Once you understand that landscape and where the risky data is, then you start making sure you've got the right access controls and encryption. And even just pick something simple, like I'm about, eh, I've got data that's 10 years old. I don't need it anymore. Um, but I, I, I want to keep it around in case I need it at a later date. I'm going to archive it. Um, I have to know what's in that data to know, do I encrypt it before I archive it or do I leave it in the, in, in the clear? So that kind of thing. So understanding that uh, is important. So, so that part's all about finding it, what's regulated it, classifying it, um, and then protecting it. And a big part of the protection is, who, you know, showing who has access, but then uh, once you've done that, it's important to then monitor that access. Because I might say, I've just found this very sensitive data set and 100 people in my organization have the permissions set up to access that. But I've just looked over the last 12 months, only 10 of them accessed it. What I can do at that point is I can say, look, there are probably 90 people. If I removed their access, they would never complain, right? I have significantly reduced my risk by doing that, right? Because now I only have 10 people to track everything else. So it's about understanding who has access to this information and who has been accessing it recently, right? So so these are some of the core areas. You know, I definitely need the identity-centric, but this data-centric approach is very, very critical and, and continue to monitor, you know, who's touching it, how, what data's moving in, what data's moving out, etc. So it's this whole area of maintaining a constant state of compliance. And it's interesting that, uh, I mean, you were talking about mainframe, we're talking about very big iron and lots of data and decades of it. But in some ways, you know, it's also, I guess, you're listening to what you're saying there, it, you know, it's the type of data. I mean, you could even have, you know, effectively a USB stick of, of, of sensitive data that somehow made its way out of the building. And it's as critical in many ways as your entire data lake. But as you said, if you can track who's had access to it and what they've done with it and what treatment they've had to it, you can then make some decisions on to respond to it. It's when you don't have that visibility that I guess you're constantly in risk and, and you know, can't necessarily sleep at night, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Very much so. Now, I'm really keen to, uh, before we wrap up, I, I love this idea of giving my guests a virtual crystal ball and asking you to gaze deeply into it for a moment, if you don't mind. 
Um, you, you know, you're literally at the bleeding edge of some of the biggest challenges uh, business and organisations of any form, uh, both government and enterprise face. Um, next three to five years, you know, where, where do you see us being in this whole space of data protection, data processing, trust, compliance, risk management? I mean, particularly trust. Um, I would love to get your sense and kind of, you know, your personal take more than just the, the companies. Uh, where are we going to be in three to five years, do you think, given uh, everything you've got access to and you know and, and your life's experience? I think there are a lot of interesting areas coming up. And this is, you know, why I love working in this area because you're never going to get bored. Um, you know, we've got big data and the big data continues to keep growing. Uh, and I'm going to coin the term big regulation because that's something else that continues to grow because as data grows, as, as um, more information is gathered about us, uh, it's inevitable that going to be more regulations to control how well that data is managed. Right? I like so, that. Big regulation. So you heard it here first. <laughs> big regulation. There you go. Um, so there's no doubt. But the uh, but the problem here is as this information grows, and, and let's face it, the threat landscape um, itself is going to grow. The number of threats uh, you, you know that are posed, that are going after this information is going to continue to grow. Um, it's already humanly impossible um, to try and really track all of that. So what we're going to see a lot more of are certainly, um, you're certainly going to see more an analytics and machine learning. Because uh, it's all very well, for example, I can put in place um, good access controls to make sure that only the right people can access something. But what happens when that user goes bad? And, you know, the, the statistic I quoted earlier was, um, it could be 147 days on average before we detect that um, a, a breach has occurred. So I, what we will see now is more machine learning coming in that's actually looking at what is standard behavior? What's the standard behavior of a user uh, in the organization? And when that user deviates from that behavior, I want an alert to go up so that I can go investigate that. Let me, let me give an example. So Des has a uh, as an ID and a password on the system, and you know Des he logs on at eight o'clock on Monday morning, and logs off again at six p.m. and he, that's his typical behaviour Monday to Friday. Here here are the data sets and applications he normally accesses during the week. Um, so I build up a profile of Des, and that's it. I monitor that. Um, then suddenly I notice that Des, uh, Des logged on at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night. Um, and instead of when he normally goes after this database and takes a record out to view it, he's just downloaded 20,000 of those records from that database. So this is, you know, flagging an anomaly here, right? As soon as something bad happens, not waiting that 147 days. Right? So it's looking for anomalous behavior, letting the machine detect this when people are not able to do it, keep up with this. So I see a lot more machine learning anomaly detection uh, coming in. Um, and then as, and I'm going to use this word trust again, but as we start to trust these systems a bit more, being able to detect that and having the intelligence to understand what's the best approach to react to this particular situation, that piece is going to drive more automation because it's all very well to have noticed something bad happen. I need a human to intervene here. That human could be too slow. So we may want to drive automation. Now, that is a big leap of faith, right? You talk to 
uh, most of the experts that are around a mainframe today, they're saying, ah, you know what, I need to get involved. I'm not letting any system automate a response here um, that could je jeopardize, yeah. um, you know, the transaction processing of the mainframe. So here's how I think, you know, it's machine learning and it's the ability to start to drive some automation to prevent some of these um, nasty things happening. I think these are some of the areas we're going to be seeing uh, coming forward uh, in, the, in the next few years. Now we've got some exciting times ahead of us. Well, Stuart, it's been fantastic to get to know you and um, you personally, and uh, thanks for sharing some insights into your life and your career path. And uh, also your exciting role now as Director of Product Management at Broadcom. Some great insights into what's happening around the whole issue of data protection, trust, and so forth. And, uh, yeah, really appreciate your future gazing there. I think um, it's definitely a brave new world coming at us, but my general sense from what you're telling us is that... Uh, with what you're doing there at Broadcom and some of the tools and systems that you're uh, providing access to, and certainly for your existing customers and future customers, uh, we seem to be in good hands, and uh, that gives me great faith in where my teenage kids are going to go in the future. Oh, thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about a subject I love, Des, and it's been super chatting with you, so I hope we get the chance to do this again soon. We will indeed. I'm going to insist we have you back on the show because I've just made about two pages of notes that you might have heard me scribbling away on some of the big topics, and I'd really love to dive into them in more detail. Well, Stuart, thanks so much again, and folks, thanks for tuning in. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you uh, join us here again on Conversations with Des. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the next show. Appreciate your time. Thanks again, Stuart. It's been great to chat with you. Thank you. Take care.